following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. We are in the second week right now of the 2015 Artisan Summer Read. This is our third year doing this as a tradition, um, and uh, I think that we will probably keep doing this until they stop making books. it's uh, just by show of hands, how many of you have already read some or all of Bonhoeffer's Life Together? Um, okay. I would like to see more hands next time. <laughs> um, it is entirely our intention to uh, talk about this in a way that's accessible to people who haven't read the book. So don't worry. There's not going to be a quiz. I'm not going to put anybody on the spot about what was on page 71 or anything like that. But the more of us who are reading this book the more of us will be of the same mind and the more we can have a, an enlightened and fruitful conversation about it in times um, on Sundays and in our small groups and in other places as well. So if you don't have the book already, you can get it on Amazon for 10 bucks. The Kindle edition is even cheaper and uh, we don't have any copies on hand anymore, but if you don't have Amazon Prime and you would like me to order it on your behalf, I can do that. It will be here on Tuesday, I think. That's how Prime works, uh, if you tell me today. And I will bring it to you, wherever you live in the city. I'm not going to the suburbs, though. Forget that. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I love, I love my suburban friends. Um, and it's, the reality is I live in a part of the city that's essentially a suburb. It's, it's, uh, I really don't have any leg to stand on if I were to be arrogant about that kind of thing. <laughs> I've got more trees next to my house than most of you in the suburbs have next to yours. Um, anyway, that's not what we came here to talk about. Uh, But this is the summer read. We are reading Bonhoeffer's classic book, uh, Life Together. And the intention here is that this kicks off our thematic thread for the second half of this calendar year, 2015. That thread is um, our next decade. We have celebrated 10 years as a church just recently, and it's really kind of one of those times where we're stopping to think, wow, where have we been? What has God done among us? And what's coming up? What is our next decade as a church going to look like? And I'm not saying it's going to look like uh, a seminary in Nazi Germany, right? That's not why we're reading this book. That is the setting of the book, as, as most of you know by now, probably. Um, but what he says about living life together as Christians is really challenging and informative and uh, enlightening for us. So last week we talked about chapter one, which was uh, about community. And man, that, was, that had some tough stuff in it. We talked about how uh, God hates our visionary dreams, <laughs> that when we have a very definite idea of what Christian community should look like, uh, God's grace speedily shatters such dreams. That's what Bonhoeffer says. Uh, um, sort of a disconcerting, uh, disconcerting thing. Um, this week, we're talking about chapter 2, which is called The Day with Others. And in, uh, because of the content in this chapter, um, I think it's even more important this week that you get a little bit of the context of the book, which I hinted at a second ago, because... Um, the community that Bonhoeffer was a part of is very different from our community, but there are some similarities as well, and we need to sort that out a little bit today. Um, so Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, was a German in uh, the early first half of the 20th, 20th century, and in 1933, he gave a radio address in Germany that was very critical of the German public's embrace of a certain leader who was rising to power, whose name was Adolf Hitler. Um, That radio broadcast was cut off before he finished it, and he knew it was time to get out of there. So he fled to London. He didn't want anything to do with this German-Christian compromise, as the introduction says, uh, with the Nazi government. Uh, 
But he was called back by the church, back to Germany. They called him back to take charge of a seminary, which is a training school for pastors. This seminary was illegal under the Nazi government, so it was clandestine. It was underground. And uh, the context of which Bonhoeffer is writing in the book Life Together is this underground, secret, illegal seminary. It was put up in these safe houses, and they lived together. Bonhoeffer with 25 vicars, 25 uh, seminarians who were becoming pastors. That's what he means when he says life together. He doesn't, he's not really exactly talking about uh, a group of you know, relatively unaffected American Christians who come together on Sundays and maybe once in a while see each other during the week as well. It was a lot more intensive. Um, now, so obviously, if he's writing a chapter in his book called The Day with Others, that's going to look different in his context than it's going to look in ours. Um, there'll be some challenges for us in applying what he has to say to our own life together. And if you've read chapter two, you know that this is true. There's some real differences between these two settings. But you also know that there's some similarities. And Bonhoeffer kind of accommodates for that as well. He knew that he was writing not just for his uh, seminary of two dozen people. He was writing for a wider audience. And so uh, if you've read the book, you, you see that he makes application to how families can enact some of his instruction and teaching for life together. Uh, and I think a lot of their day together, as we'll see, looks a little bit like what we do on Sundays. Um, there are some ways that it doesn't. So because of this, this difficulty in application, I, I want to try to give us, the artisan community, an opportunity to try some of what he suggests in chapter 2, The Day with Others, I'm not going to do that right now, I'm going to do it this week, and I'll explain a little bit more about what that uh, will look like at the very end of my uh, talk this morning. Um, Which, by the way, is is a little bit less of a sermon than a typical Sunday morning would be. It's a little bit like leading a discussion in a book club, (laughs) because we're reading a book. But if you've read this book, you know that Bonhoeffer just laces the whole thing with Scripture, right? And I don't know if he put it in or if the translator did or the editor did, but there's all the Scripture references are right in there. And here's the other thing. What I found really interesting um, about Bonhoeffer's day with others you could boil down the description of how he and his uh, seminarians spend their day with one simple phrase. With one simple phrase which is very familiar to us. Which is a phrase that very recently we had quite close to our hearts and revisited almost every week. Do you know what this phrase is? (laughs) He doesn't use the phrase. But it's very clear when you read the description of how his seminary spent their day with each other that they were seeking to be shaped by the words of Scripture. This is what we spent the last 12 months talking about, how we could be shaped by the words of Scripture. All day long, every, every little part of the day has some Scripture pushed into it in a way that's really quite challenging and, and moving. They wanted to be shaped by the words. We want to be shaped by the words. By the way, just because that thematic thread has come to its conclusion doesn't mean we're going to stop looking to the Bible um, 
the words of Scripture to, to be formative and transformative for us in our life. So I'm going to run through uh, the agenda of a day in this German seminary in a minute and see how we can apply it. But before we do that, I, I was really struck by one particular place that he went in Scripture, just a very, very short passage of Scripture, and we'll look at it together here. Um, it's Matthew 13, 51. And um, <clears throat> this little parable within a parable that he quotes, it sort of ties the room together here. Um, everything that we've been trying to say over the past 12 months about being shaped by the words of Scripture, I think this little parable within a parable illustrates that. And I call it a parable within a parable because it's one of the occasions where Jesus has been teaching in parables. In other words, analogies and metaphors and stories. The kingdom of God is like this or like that or like that person or this occasion. And he, every once in a while, he'll kind of, as he's teaching the crowds, he'll turn to his disciples and say, do you understand what I'm saying? And they're like, yep, totally. I am absolutely on board. I get every word. <laughs> or sometimes they're more honest and they say, Oh, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> and then he has to stop and explain to them what he means with these metaphors. This is the problem with, with analogical language, right? Um, sometimes we just want them to get to the point. <laughs> we just want to tell them to, to give us the rules and we'll try to follow them and that'll be that. But that's not exactly how Jesus wants to operate. So in this case, um, look at verse 51 of chapter 13 in Matthew. If you, if you have read Bibles, which are scattered about the building. You can see there on page 795. This is where we are. He's told these parables and he says, have you understood all this? They answered him, yes. <laughs> and he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven, and another translation says every teacher of the law who has you know, become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven, is like the master of a household who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Have you ever gone to somebody's house and they just have all kinds of cool stuff, <laughs> right? I uh, love guitar stuff. So I love going to the houses of people who have more guitars than I do. And I don't have that many guitars. I mean, ask Tracy. Uh, like, I could probably use some more. Um, <clears throat> some people have lots of guitars. And I go to their house and I'm like, ooh, show me those. And they bring out treasures old and new. They bring out the brand new guitar, <laughs> And then they bring out the historic 1959 Les Paul or something. And these are treasures old and new, and I'm fascinated by it, right? Or maybe you're a collector of something. And you go to somebody's house, and they're a collector of that thing too. And you, you know, like, wow, you have the Honus Wagner card. That's amazing. Nobody has the Honus Wagner card. It's a myth. But you know what I'm talking about, right? You go to someone's house, and they have treasures old and treasures new, and they bring them out to you and show them to you. What Jesus is saying is that people who understand the scripture, who understand the word of God, they're like those people who have in their household treasures old and new, and you can go and visit with them and be enlightened and be amazed. <laughs> what Bonhoeffer is saying here is that if we will allow ourselves to be shaped by the words of Scripture, we too can be like that wise householder, to use the King James language, who goes into his storehouse and brings out treasures old and new. In our interactions with each other, we can bring out the treasures of Scripture 
the old stories and share them with one another and speak truth into each other's lives. If we are shaped by Scripture, we can bring out new treasures and see and judge and discern what the Holy Spirit might be doing among us that is new and different. You do believe that the Holy Spirit does new and different things sometimes, right? Treasures old and treasures new. But you, you can't share that with one another unless, unless, unless you're like the wise householder and you have the stuff in your storehouse. The only way to do that is to, to get it, right? And the only way to get it is a little bit at a time. Let me show you what this means. Like, uh, here's, here's roughly the agenda um, of a day with others at Bonhoeffer's seminary, right? And in, in some cases, I'll, I'll quote little window passages from the, from the, uh, the text. Um, he starts out with the mornings, right? And uh, he says, morning does not belong to the individual. It belongs to the church of the triune God. That's pretty interesting, right? He says, Therefore, at the beginning of the day, let all distraction and empty talk be silenced. And let the first thought and the first word belong to him to whom our whole life belongs. Right? Did I put that on the screen? Let the first word... Oh. (laughs) What do you look at when you wake up in the morning? Is there anybody in the room who doesn't do this first thing in the morning? This is the first thought and the first word of him to whom our whole life belongs. Am I the only one? Am I honestly the only one who has my phone plugged in, like literally sitting on my bed because I have a fancy motion-sensitive alarm clock that wakes my fragile little body up gently and carefully every morning? (laughs) And I'm like, well, I, I have to shut the alarm clock off. I might as well check Facebook. Right? Honestly, am I the, how many of you wake up in the morning and check your phone first thing? Be honest. Raise your hand. I read an article this week about things that first-time visitors don't like in church. They don't like being asked to raise their hand. So if you're a first-time visitor, it's okay. I want you to see all of us raising our hands, though. <laughs> Do you understand? We're like one sentence into this book, into this chapter. Do you understand what a, what, how big a fundamental shift we, is required to engage with any of the ideas that he's talking about here? And it has nothing to do in this case with him being in a cloistered seminary and us being, you know, American Christians who have jobs to go to and stuff. It has everything to do with our priorities. The next thing that he says is that They pray the Psalms together. This section is called The Secret of the Psalter. (laughs) The Secret of the Psalm Prayer Book. This is challenging for me. Anybody who's ever taken the time to read through the book of Psalms knows that there's a lot of stuff in there that's quite disturbing. And if we were to make the Psalter our prayer book, which is really what the church has done traditionally. And Bonhoeffer's not making this up or coming up with something new. He's only saying this is what the church does. 
that the Psalms shape the words of our prayers. See, we're, we're, uh, we're 21st century uh, evangelicals. We don't necessarily like the idea of having something else shape our prayers. We, we think that the best prayer is the one that we come up with off the top of our heads and that the best prayer is the one who can do that with the most skill. But what the church has traditionally taught is that the prayers are found in the Psalter. And Bonhoeffer's saying that you should pray the Psalms. But he's not uh, unaware of the fact that there's all kinds of stuff in the Psalms that you would not want to make your prayer. Right? He's saying you can't, you can't really pray a, a Psalm that declares your innocence, right? Because you're not innocent. <laughs> you can't really necessarily proclaim a, pray a prayer of suffering if you don't happen to be suffering in that moment. Or the ones that are really, really difficult, the ones that he calls the imprecatory psalms. Do you know what an imprecatory psalm is? Did I say that word right? Imprecatory? I don't know. Imprecatory psalms are the ones that call down judgment on your enemies. Right? They proclaim the psalmist's own righteousness and say, How long, O God, will my enemies pursue me when I am blameless? Oh, that you would consume them in fire. Right? I mean, I'm joking and it's silly, but there's some really disturbing stuff in there. You know, swinging babies' heads against rocks and things kind of stuff. We can't pretend that those aren't in, the, in, in our sacred text. And if we're going to pray the Psalms, there comes a point where we might have to pray those words, and that's really disturbing. For anybody else, or is it just me? Okay, first-timers don't have to raise your hand, but everybody else. <laughs> um, I'm not entirely sure, to be honest with you, that, I, that I'm okay with Bonhoeffer's explanation for this. If you've read this, what he says is that you do this by um, assuming this as Christ's own prayer, that Jesus can pray those psalms, and that you are being guided through prayer or into prayer through the psalms by Jesus himself. Um, and I'm okay with that, and it's very helpful to a certain extent. Jesus is the one, after all, who's blameless, whose enemies are pursuing him uh, for no good reason. Um, but I think Bonhoeffer and I might have to part ways a little bit on his understanding of God's wrath and judgment and so forth. Um, that was what the whole atonement series was about that we did a while ago. And so I had to, I had to, I had to wrestle with that personally. And I'm not going to stand here and pretend that I can just teach that as my own thought and, and endorse it entirely. But it's interesting to me that he uh, suggests that we pray the Psalms um, kind of in the voice of Jesus. Really fascinating, actually. And the flip side of that is very reassuring that one who prays the Psalms never prays alone because Christ himself is praying alongside you. That part I can get on board with for sure. He also points out that the the Psalms have lots of parallels to the Lord's Prayer. Which, by the way, I've been feeling lately that we should be praying together on the Lord's Prayer. He basically says, in no uncertain terms, when you pray, pray like this. Right? Pray this prayer. <laughs> um, so we won't start this week because I don't have it on the screen and I don't like to put people on the spot if you don't have it memorized. And there's some parts in the prayer where we, uh, tr different traditions have different words, and I'd like to get all on the same page. But if I don't have that Lord's Prayer on the screen for us next week, will you please hold me accountable and say, hey, you said you were going to do the Lord's Prayer. Cool. The, the parallels between the Lord's Prayer and the Psalms are really fascinating. Now, next, 
Bonhoeffer says that the day with others continues into the reading of Scripture. And I love how he proposes that, uh, that the reader reads Scripture. He's very particular about this. Um, you shouldn't read it as if it's your own words. Uh, you don't want to be too confident in the words. But you want to read it clearly so that people understand it. <laughs> it's really kind of funny. But what he says, which I think is very helpful, is when you are reading Scripture aloud in uh, the context of community worship together, read it as if you were reading a letter from a mutual friend. They're not your words. You're sharing in them and hearing them just as much as everybody else in the room is. But you're also speaking uh, kind of in the voice of the friend who wrote it. I thought that was an interesting way to approach the reading of Scripture. He points out, and this is really um, good stuff for those of us who grew up with the uh, like page-a-day devotional calendar <laughs> approach to Scripture, the verse of the day, right? Um, did anybody else have that little plastic loaf of bread with the little cards in it at your table? And you had the, the Scripture reading of the day? It was like a little uh, Bible fortune cookie. And uh, you would put it away, put it at the back of the thing. I have to get a picture of one of these and show it with you, to you. Um, it was a really cool thing. And I... As much as I make fun of it, that was like one more verse of Scripture a day that, that I read growing up than my kids are reading at the moment. So, um, you know, let's not be too hasty to d- be dismissive of those silly traditions. But what he says <laughs> is that brief verses cannot and should not take the place of reading the Scripture as a whole. He wants to read long portions of Scripture. Um, anybody who's taken our membership course, there's a, there's a moment in that course where we, we do a reading from Justin Martyr. 150 AD, he's describing Christian worship, and the point of that moment in the class is to identify that Christian worship in 150 AD was very similar to Christian worship in 2015 AD, right? Um, But one of the things that he says is the scriptures are read as long as time permits. (laughs) And I thought, well, we don't exactly do it that way. I read two verses of scripture to you just now, um, and I, you know, I don't know if I have more for you this morning. So that's kind of a, a, a conviction that I think we kind of all need to receive and hear. Because here's, here's what he says. Um, this is on page 52 if you want to look in your own copy of Life Together. He says, of course, we must admit that the scriptures are still largely unknown to us. Can the realization of our fault, our ignorance of the word of God, have any other consequence than that we should earnestly and faithfully retrieve what has been neglected? Yeah, I guess that's what we should do, huh? The benefit, he says, of reading these big sections of Scripture is that it forces everyone who wants to hear to put himself or herself, he's very kind of patriarchal in his language, but that's okay. He's an older dude. Um, Forces everyone who wants to hear to put himself or to allow herself to be found where God has acted once and for all for the salvation of men, of people. We become a part of, once, of what once took place for our salvation. Reading long sections of Scripture allows us to place ourselves into the story of God. You remember at the beginning of the Shaped by the Words year, where we read the Blue Parakeet and talked about the story of God and how Scripture tells the story of God? And uh, one of my favorite writers and theologians, N.T. Wright, talks about um, the, the, the story of history as a five-act play, and the scriptures contain the 
the first four acts and we are in the fifth act as players in the drama, improvising our lines in the final scenes of the story of God. There's no other way to become knowledgeable and aware of the story of God than to read it, right? As Bonhoeffer says, we must not grudge the time and the work that it takes. Do you like how honest he is there? He is not going to say to you, well, just read your, read your, read your devos, man. Do, do, your, do your verse a day. Get the page a day calendar. Get the Our Daily Bread thing. He says it takes time and it takes work. The two things that nobody in this room wants to hear are that it takes time and it takes work. Are you willing to give this a little bit of time? Are you willing to do a little bit of work? Here's something that perhaps will reassure you. And maybe this is, maybe this is the other side of the coin that, of, that Bonhoeffer presented to us about reading large sections of Scripture. I read something in a, in a book about a year ago that really did change my life and my work for the better. Um, it's a book about you know, managing your daily schedule, particularly targeted for creative people. And one of the quotations in the book says this, A small daily task, if it be truly daily, will beat the efforts of a spasmodic Hercules. I was going about my life trying to be the spasmodic Hercules, meaning about once a month or so I'd go, you know what? I haven't read any books lately. I'm going to read a book today. <laughs> Rita, clear my schedule. <laughs> I don't have anybody named Rita who has manages my schedule. Um, and I would never succeed. That's the spasmodic Hercules trying to do all the lifting at once in one day. What I decided to do was do a little bit every day. And I have read more scripture and more books in the past 12 months than I have probably in my whole life, by doing a little bit every day, most days. I fail sometimes. But we must not grudge the time and work that it takes. You have to make it a priority. There is no other way that this is going to happen. You can't come to church on Sundays and expect by osmosis to receive the knowledge of the entire story of God as presented in the words of Scripture from uh, my meager sermons, right? Because sometimes you're going to get two verses and you're going to go, well, that guy doesn't preach the Bible. That stinks. I'll try again next week. It requires some actual effort on your own part, just as it does on my own part. All right, moving on through the agenda of the day. The day with others has singing. He has a very interesting passage about why and how Christians ought to sing. I think he would hate coming to Artisan. (laughs) Um, He wants, like, he doesn't even want polyphony. He wants, like, unison singing of the hymn, not even any octaves. He's like, that's for the fancy show-off-y people who want to prove that they can sing really high or really low. <laughs> and we're like running our three-part harmonies with, uh, you know, guitars and fancy keyboards and drum sets and things. I think he would just... <laughs> Sorry, D. He wouldn't like it here. <laughs> I call him D. D-E-E. He doesn't like it, but I The day continues with prayer together. 
And here he's actually talking not about praying the Psalms, praying formal words, but praying um, extemporaneously and with an acute and intimate knowledge of what's going on in the lives of your brothers and sisters in community with you. He basically says that if you, don't, if you haven't taken the time to get to know what's going on in people's lives, you're, you're not going to be able to pray for them. Which is probably true, isn't it? Talks about eating meals together. And uh, in this case, he's not specifically talking about the, the sacrament of communion. That will come in chapter 5. He's simply talking about eating together. And haven't we seen, many of us, how good that is to just share a meal with people with whom we're in spiritual community? He talks about work. Now, for them, there was work to do around the seminary. For you and I, um, there's work to do in other places. But he has a really um, wonderful view of, of work. The, the quoting, I think, from Colossians, saying, whatever you do, do it, do it to the Lord. Do it for the sake of Jesus. Whatever your job is, pretend you're working for the man, the son of man. He doesn't say, that was my cheesy thing. And then he talks about the end of the day. And what is it that happens traditionally at the end of the day in a cloistered Christian community? Mutual forgiveness. At the end of every day in an abbey, the abbot would get up and ask for forgiveness of all the, all the people, all the monks. And they would extend it to him and then they would ask for his forgiveness and he would extend it to them. What a beautiful picture. Imagine if every day we stopped before we went to bed and thought, Hmm, who do I need to ask to forgive me right now? (laughs) Who is it that I could forgive? Powerful stuff. I can't quite see the clock for some reason this morning. The light is weird in here. I want to make sure we have time. Okay. Um, I have some concluding thoughts in in just a second, but I wanted to give maybe, maybe two people who've read this book is there anything that I didn't just share from the, from the chapter that you thought was particularly poignant, maybe would be especially helpful to us at, as artists in church as we try to enact this teaching from life together in a different context? And if, there, if this just falls flat, that's fine, but I wanted I want to give you a chance to respond. Okay, no problem. But um, let me know if I can get you a copy of that book before next week. <laughs> I actually, we, we sold 25 copies of the book, so um, it may be that some people are just not here. So that's actually pretty cons- uh, uh, consistent with what we've sold in previous years when we've done the summer read. So um, I'm teasing you, and it's totally okay if you don't have time to read the book in addition to all that else that's going on in your life. But if I can get you a copy of the book so, so that you could do it, let me know. Did you want to say something, Dale? Yeah. 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 
Interesting. Yeah. So long as we eat our bread together, we shall have sufficient even with the least. Not until one person desires to keep his own bread for himself does hunger ensue. It's true, isn't it? If we ate our meals together, we'd all have enough. <laughs> yeah? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Forgetting about glorifying yourself and glorifying God and not shirking off or being distracted or checking deeds while you should be working. Yeah. Treating your work prayerfully is a way to make praying all day a reality. Yeah. And you can do that no matter how um, important or dignified or not you think your work might be, right? I had a job once where I had to wear a plastic bow tie. And serve popcorn, expensive popcorn to ungrateful people, right? Um, <laughs> they, were un- they were ungrateful that it was like four kernels of popcorn for $12. But, I mean, that was not dignified work. But I, when I read that, I was like, oh, man, I should have been thinking about it that way rather than resenting it or resenting the people that I worked with or whatever. Yeah, thank you. Well, I want to conclude with one particularly poignant statement that Bonhoeffer makes, and it's on page 71. He's talking about wasted time. Earlier I talked about waking up and looking at my iPhone, and a lot of you do the same thing. And I feel guilty and frustrated when I do that because I, I consider it to be wasted time. Here's what he says about wasted time. Wasted time, which we are ashamed of, temptations that beset us, weakness and listlessness in our work, Disorder and indiscipline in our thinking and our relations with other people very frequently have their cause in neglect of the morning prayer. I'll say that again a little quicker. Wasted time, which we are ashamed of. Temptations that beset us. Weakness and listlessness in our work. Disorder and indiscipline in our thinking and our relations with other people very frequently have their cause in neglect of the morning prayer. The prayer of the morning will determine the day. That's what he says. The prayer of the morning will determine the day. And I really, truly, absolutely believe that that is true. And it's not just for morning people. It might be a little easier for morning people, but I'm kind of a morning person. And I still piss away the morning not doing morning prayer. I waste time doing all kinds of other nonsense that I shouldn't be doing. And it does affect my day because when I start the day right, all that other stuff becomes less of a challenge and becomes more fruitful. So I want to try an experiment with you this week. I know not everybody will be able to do it. It may just be me and my family if I can convince them to do it. But what I want to do is I want to practice a a Bonhofferian morning liturgy on Tuesday and Thursday of this week. I'm going to be here in this room on Tuesday at 7 a.m. and again on Thursday at 7 a.m. 
And any, uh, the doors will be open. Any of you who wants to join me at that time, you're welcome to come. And we will start the day with um, just doing what Bonhoeffer says, with the agenda that I just described, with psalms, with reading some other scripture, with, maybe with a song, I don't know. Um, I guess to cover the meal, I could get some donuts, if that would help get you here. Would you like me to get donuts? <laughs> and um, with prayer. It will take less than an hour. It might take a half an hour. I'm not sure how long it'll take. You could leave early if you needed to get to work or whatever. But I'm going to be here at 7 on Tuesday and on Thursday. And I want to try this. I want to see as an experiment, for those of us who are able to do it, whether or not that changes the tenor and the character of our day at all. Anybody interested in that? Yeah? We'll see a few people here on Saturday, Saturday, (laughs) on Tuesday and Thursday at 7. All right. Listen, like so many other things, I don't know how to do any of this any better than you do. All I know is that if you don't try something, it will never work. So we are going to swing the bat at this ball, right? Sorry to go sportsy on you. Um, But we're going to take a swing and see what happens. If it doesn't work, we'll try something different maybe. But that's what we're going to do. Tuesday and Thursday at 7 a.m. right here in this room. And uh, hopefully it helps us start our day with others. Hopefully it helps us engage our life together. All right, let's pray. Thank you, God, for this uh, great book, for the way that it challenges us, for the way that we go, huh? For the ways that we go, ouch. For the ways that we go, oh, wow. We are grateful for the witness of uh, your servant, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, even these decades later in a completely different context that that these words from this book challenge us to live our life together more deeply and richly and fruitfully. We pray, O Lord, that uh, we would know and be shaped by your word so that we would be like that wise householder who takes out of our stores treasures old and treasures new to share with those around us. We know that it can only happen by not grudging the time and the work that it will take. We pray that you'd give us courage to do it, that you give us persistence, that you would give us wakefulness, those of us who will try this on Tuesday and Thursday, and that we would truly start our day practicing life together. And for those who can't do it, we pray that you would give other opportunities to try it with family, with friends, or on their own if they need to. Bless them, I pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. I want to invite you now to come to the communion table. We're going to sing a couple more songs together. This table is the table of the Lord Jesus. He invites each of you to come and follow him. One of the things Bonhoeffer says is when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Not particularly a happy notion, until you experience it (laughs) because there's new life after that death to yourself. That's what's represented at the cross and at the empty tomb. That's what's represented at the table of the Lord. And so if you're seeking to follow Jesus in this place today, this table is uh, for you. You are welcome to come and receive the bread and the cup. We have both wine and juice, whatever be more appropriate for you and for your family. Take a piece of the bread and dip it in one of the cups and receive his body and blood as food for your souls and as an act of community, communion with those around you.
the table's open. Uh, if you'd like to receive prayer, there'll be a member of the prayer team here who would be happy to pray with you in person as well during this time. Um, so come as you feel led. Amen. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.